Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that still hasn't managed to put a name to whatever programme it was that ended with footage of dandelion seeds being blown away while a disembodied voice intoned 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, etc. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one has ever seemed to is illustrator and custodian of the Museum of Scarfuck, Richard Littler. Richard, what are you up to? Where can we find it? I've just released the second Scarfunk book, the Scarfunk Annual, and that's currently uh, online on, on either on the Scarfunk Twitter account or the Facebook page, or most importantly, at a bookshop where you can buy it. <laughs> okay, well, other than general spookiness, I've got no way of getting into your first clip, which I didn't believe was real until you mentioned it to me. So here's a clip from it, and we will dissect the full horror afterwards. Girls at 13 don't play with dolls. Thirteen isn't exactly middle-aged, you know. Yeah, but I think we should get her something that makes her feel older. I've embroidered her some pillowcases. Looks to me like Ben and me should finish up that hope chest we started. A baby of the family turning into a teenager. That's what's bothering her. You all remember being thirteen. Isn't easy. Yep. I wouldn't want to be thirteen again for anything. Right, you're probably thinking that sounds a little bit like the Waltons, crossed with a video nasty, and that's more or less exactly what it is. That's The Changeling, an episode from 1978. Richard, what was so special about this? It is very wrong. I mean, the entire thing <laughs> is inappropriate, and it's not what children should be watching. It's, uh, and I remember seeing it when I was, obviously, when it, when it was first broadcast, so that was 1978, as you said. You know, you'd watch the news as a kid, and there'd be IRA and, and you know, all sorts of terrible things happening in the world. So you'd, you'd put on BBC Two to try and calm down and watch something completely innocent like the Waltons. But on this particular episode, of course, what we have is uh, what starts out as Jason Walton going for a, a job at a local news, uh, a local radio station where he's going to give love advice. And so you think, yeah, you're watching this. It's absolutely fine. And suddenly you go to bl- uh, plot B and it's about Elizabeth Walton who starts experiencing strange phenomena and it's very quickly revealed to be a poltergeist. So that we have images of, yeah, you see rocking chairs jumping up and down and and uh, swinging, obviously, uh, uh, rocking rather, not swinging. And you see a strange doll sort of half walking towards her and knockings. And it was it's absolutely hideous. I mean, what they thought, putting that in a, in a family show, I really don't know. Well, there's the double thing going on here. There were a lot of particularly children shows that went off script in this manner. I mean, the one that, although I didn't see it myself at the time, that I always think of was, it's best known to me as the episode of The Adventures of Black Beauty with skeletons in cloaks. Which <laughs> I, I, always seem, I always seem to miss it. I think it's like a satanic ritual thing to do with the whole, yeah. I don't know, but kids in school are talking, oh, do you see Black Beauty when there were the skeletons <laughs> in the cloaks? We think, what are you all talking about? So yeah, there yeah. was that. Also, there's a weird thing at that time. I mean, I think for some reason, I don't know why, but people in the 70s seem to be especially credulous about the paranormal for no yeah. readily obvious reason. But there's a real thing about poltergeist around that time. Because this is, you know, this is four years before poltergeist the movie mm-hmm. and there were yeah. all kinds of books and magazines and so on about poltergeists and i've never known whether i mean obviously i think it's a hoax but whether it's been established as a hoax or not the enfield poltergeist which i think would get covered on the news didn't it well exactly it was it was a nationwide special and uh, so you know they gave it some, a decent amount of coverage it was again you know it's what are you doing showing that to kids especially someone like me who was a very nervous child it was absolutely horrifying I and mean, i was profoundly terrified seeing you know at six o'clock in the evening after watching you know laurel and hardy or whatever it was or actually probably uh either the engine watching this girl scream and shout in a demonic voice talking about marbles flying around the room and policemen seeing girls flying through the air i mean it was just absolutely hideous later i found out and it's actually it's really interesting do you know who was called in as an expert in the enfield case ray allen the ventriloquist what Really? Ray, yeah, this is, this is the, I know exactly. Yeah, it's Ray Allen was called as a as a as an expert, and he uh, was to investigate the vocalizations by Janet, uh, the girl. His conclusion was that 
uh, it was trickery. But what about Lord Charles? What's his conclusion? But if it was a nationwide special, did they have Richard Stilgo singing like, oh, you'll think <laughs> twice when you've met the Enfield Poltergeist? <laughs> yeah, actually, he did miss that, unfortunately. That's, <laughs> they, they missed the trick there. But in the Walsons, it turns out to be a real poltergeist caused by the onset of puberty because it's her birthday, isn't it? She is, exactly. She's turned of age, as they say, and um, it's uh, believed that she is emotionally distraught and is, and is generating this, this strange uh, phenomenon. The Enfield case is the same because the so-called dead guy, the poltergeist, Bill, they said that it was odd that he was quite obsessed with periods and menstruation. And uh, and it, so it's exactly the same kind of story as, as the Waltons. Well, it's just kind of floored me because I had no idea this, this episode even existed because to me, because mm. I grew up in the mainly female household and... I did pay little attention to the Waltons, but it was always on. And it always seemed to me to be that they were going to a dance and Grandma's old beau would be there. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the only story. Like, so how does the poltergeist come into it? Well, I think the old beau died. Um, that's the problem. <laughs> I, don't, I have this vague memory of it being her grandfather. I remember one episode in which he died, and I don't know if the two episodes were connected. There must have been eight million episodes of The Waltons, and, and it was always on, and it's the only episode I, I, I ever remember. Did it end with, you know when they used to say, you know, good night Jim Bob, good night, good night Mary mm. Ellen, good night, yeah. good night John Boy. Did it end with the poltergeist turning all the lights back on after the beat? Exactly, on and off or a knock. <laughs> he, says, he, says, he says good night in Morse code. Have you watched it again since it was on? Is it as weird as you remember? Yeah, it is. I watched it again because, uh, actually, I found it online, so I downloaded it. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten about this completely banal story about uh, Jason Walton getting a job on the local radio. I mean, who cares? Yeah, well, also, what love advice could Jason give? He Was was he the red-haired one? That's the one, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, he never had any luck with dates, did he? So what was he doing doling out romantic tips? Well, I think the theme of the entire episode was horror. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> But I think it was to do with growing up. I think that was the, the, the theme. But to do it via the medium of poltergeist is just 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 wrong. But like you said, you know, it's very it's very 1977-78. I mean, magazines, newspapers, reports, uh, books, the, all the lurid stuff, the Unexplained magazine. You know, the culture was, was ready for it. Speaking of the 70s, we're staying actually in 1978 for your second choice. I'm going to guess it looked just as much as a blur as I'm visualising it. Can't really put a clip to go with this, so here's a bit of music that we might come back to in a minute. Okay, that's the Star Wars theme, and you're probably noticing it doesn't sound exactly like the Star Wars theme. That's because it's by the Sonic All-Stars. More about them in a minute. But Richard, Star Wars, Blackpool Illuminations, what was going on there? It was one of those fragments of a memory that you ended up believing that you dreamt it because I was so Star Wars obsessed as a kid, or sci-fi obsessed. So much so that I actually got into a fight with a kid at school because I'd said I'd been to the Blackpool Illuminations and I loved all the Star Wars stuff. Did you draw your lightsaber, please? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, probably. Yeah, I got into this big fight because uh, he, this kid didn't believe me. And he said, well, I was at the Blackpool Illuminations and you didn't see, you were just showing off. And we got into this big playground fight. So, yeah, I started to not believe myself until literally two years ago, or a year and a half ago, when I saw an image online of an X-Wing fighter and a C-3PO and R2-D2 figure on the on the side of the road in Blackpool, and just simply because someone had taken a picture with them, and they weren't very very long from what I can gather, because they were blown down in a high wind, because they were made out of cardboard and <laughs> balsa wood and newspaper and what have you. But but they were there, so I have photographs. So it definitely happened. Yeah, I found one photograph, which is a uh, whoever you are, if you're out there, I hope you forgive me for saying this, but a proper kid like you know that famous photo of the opening day of Games Workshop, which again I think might be 1978. Was yeah. That massive queue of very 70s sci-fi fan teenager boys outside. Someone who looks like he stepped straight out of that photo next to the X-Wing. And the only other thing I found out was the lights switched on that year by Terry Wogan. Ah. So he must have done some kind of wisecrack about Star Wars content being there, but in a way that indicated he had neither any knowledge nor interest in what Star yeah, yeah. Wars was. But... Well, exactly. <laughs> it would always be the sort of thing where... 
you know, if Anthony Daniels, I don't know if he ever did appear on Wogan, but if he did, you know, they would have, C3PO would have come out the start and he'd go like, be off with you, back and... to Saturn, I say. <laughs> exactly, you would. that's exactly what he would do. You did point out that, you know, there's a lot of Star Wars ephemera from around then that's being completely forgotten. I mean, my big thing is I am fascinated by, there was a time in the late 80s, early 90s, when Star Wars was yesterday's thing. Mm-hmm. Nobody talked about it. You occasionally got things like there was droids, the cartoon, which we've had covered on here, you know, stickers that came free with Derby Lee, I think. There were Lando Carissian novels. But there was all this tat in the late 70s, just cashing in on it, probably all completely unlicensed, that oh, nobody cares yeah. about now. And you did mention the sound of Star Wars by Sonic all-stars which i think was pickwick records again from 1978 yeah that's right i mean it's actually the very first record i ever bought i bought it from woolies when it had a record and the tapes department it was quite clear that the guy had obviously wanted to be some sort of electronic you know jean-michel jar type and they said look we'll make your album but only if you do a Star Wars themed one. So he sort of, <laughs> so he rushes through the Star Wars bit and then enters a, a long sort of drawn out electronic fantasy, which is, has, has absolutely nothing to do with the Star Wars uh, themes at all. But I absolutely loved it as a kid. I mean, that, that and the, uh, the Jeff Love Star Wars album, um, oh, which was yes, an yeah. absolute favorite of mine. I mean, I just, I listened to it so many times I wore it out. I couldn't afford. I mean, the original, the proper Star Wars album was a double album, and it was they were really expensive those when you were a kid, you know. Yeah. So, so you had to buy the you know, the little uh, music for pleasure knockoffs or the uh, Pickwicks. But the Jeff Love one, I think people have got a lot of well love for because mm. there were some bad versions of things on it, but there were some tremendous ones as well. Brilliant version of the Barbarella theme. On. Really great, yeah. So is the UFO as well on that. Yeah, the sort of really weird porn film version of the UFO theme. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. Well, that crossed it actually just as a little footnote, as it were. That, that happened a lot. I mean, when I was looking through, obviously, like everyone involved in the kind of thing that I like is, they, they like library music, so they collect library music albums, KPM and, and what have you. And you start to realise that the music that was used in BBC children's programmes was also used in porn films. Yes. So, oh, yes. You know, so yeah, you had a lot of that. So I think that sort of crossover where you would have, uh, you know, a, a porn sound, a UFO or Barbarella, I think that's, it fits in perfect <laughs> with the time. You did also mention something about missing scenes from Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, which I've deliberately ah, yes. asked you nothing about because I want to be absolutely hip full on with this. Well, it probably, it probably won't surprise you. You probably will have heard some of this <laughs> before. There, are, there were rumours at the time, or rather shortly afterwards, about scenes that we'd all thought we'd seen and actually weren't there. So when the when they were released on VHS and when they came out on DVD or actually on Laserdisc, people said, well, yeah, it's missing that scene or it's missing that moment. And they never existed. Two or three of the most famous ones are the, the grappling hook scene when they swing across the chasm, uh, Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia. Everybody thinks that they saw him try once and fail. And it was the second time that it looped round and, and they swing. It never happened. It's not in the film. And everyone assumed it had been cut, and it hadn't. You know, I, I got so upset about the early st- sort of Star Wars versions before the uh, 97 special editions. I've got an original 35mm print from the original theatrical. And I've checked it on there, and it's not on there. It's not on the original 8mm domestic film that went out at the time, or the 16mm. It didn't exist. It's not in the screenplay. I've got the shooting script. It's not in there. Everybody thinks they saw it. You know, it's a perfect case of the Mandela effect. It's eventually tracked down to... It appears in the novelisation. Ah, I was going to say, was it in the making of Star Wars, that documentary? I've got that as well. I tried that one as well. It's not in there. <laughs> it's definitely in the novelisation, and it's also in the story, the children's storybook that came out in 1977, both of which I believe were sort of sent to print before the film came out, before it had been finalised. So yeah, people think they saw this moment, and they didn't. They imagined it after reading the book. Another case in point is, I was absolutely convinced that when I saw Star Wars at the cinema the first time, I had seen Luke Skywalker talk to his friend Biggs in the pub before they met Obi-Wan Kenobi. I was absolutely convinced I'd seen it. And now, you know, 20 years later, they, you see sort of rough footage of that scene that was cut and never made the original print. And I was convinced I'd seen it, and I hadn't. And again, it's in, it, there were photographs of that scene in the Star Wars storybook, and it's relayed as it happens in the shooting script. So I'd taken it from there. The final one is, I was convinced that I'd seen, during the in the Empire Strikes Back, during the attack on the Hoth base, I'd seen a Wampa attack the base as well. 
and they were trying to escape it within the boats. I was absolutely sure I'd seen that, and I was told that it hadn't happened. And I anyway, I eventually found out the source of that. It's in the comic Marvel Comics version. Well, I've got something a bit like that, which is mentioned on here before that I saw the Empire Strikes Back before I saw Star Wars. I was okay. just too young to go and see Star Wars in the cinema when it came out, but got elder siblings. We had all the books. We had the Viewmaster slides. We had everything because there were so many of us. Everything to do with Star Wars. We were crazy about it. But I saw the making of Star Wars before I saw Star Wars. Oh, yes. And I remember saying to people, when Jabba the Hutt turned up in Return of the Jedi, was it really that long before I saw Star Wars itself? But saying to people that Jabba had been in Star Wars and he was different. That's right. I remember Han Solo talking to this big giant haystacks man. <laughs> That's what he was, wasn't it? Quite threatening. And people were getting really angry with me, understandably. But obviously yeah. it was in the making of Star Wars yeah. and wasn't in the film. But I don't think I'd process that because I think that was shown on, was it Boxing Day that was shown on yeah, in about 79 or something? So, you know, there would have been family hubbub going on around and I hadn't realised it was a deleted scene as we didn't call them then. Absolutely, yeah. You just you just thought anything that came in was just Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars. You didn't know yeah. what the source was. You just accepted it. Right, well, we're coming back from space for your next choice to something that this is quite oppositely title because it's almost like it didn't exist again no clip i can use for this so here's some music that is quite a bit of a contrast to what we're going to talk about there's a ghost in my house a ghost of your memory a ghost of the love you took from me where our love used to be all the shadows Okay, that was R.D. Taylor's Jolly Motown Toe Tapper Northern Soul favourite, There's a Ghost in My House, which is nearest thing could think of for your next choice. Richard, the Ghost Special Annual Number 2. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that doesn't mean to be the Ghost Special Annual Number 1. What was going on? I don't know. Nobody seems to know. I'm on a lot of forums on for old comic, British comics and the whole British comic scene from the 60s through to the 80s. No one's ever heard of it. And the only thing I know about it is, well, apart from the fact I owned it, is that it was published by some company called Panda, which was in yeah. Manchester. It was, may have been quite a local release. Yeah, it was a weird little book that was, eventually through a bit of research, I found out there was a number one. I've never seen it, or, or even even I've been on Abe books, you can't find it. Do you think that's deliberate? It's like supposed to be, whoa, <laughs> exactly. number one doesn't exist. <laughs> that's, exactly. Oh, there hasn't been a number one since, not since that bookseller closed 50 years <laughs> ago. Exactly, no one has heard, seen him or heard of him <laughs> since. But yeah, it's, it's a weird little annual, and mainly because it was the only time I ever had sort of, I never, I wasn't really a fan of Beano and that kind of thing. Um, that kind of comic strip when I was a kid so and it's the only book that had that type of content there were cartoon strips called Jimmy the Genie or, or something like that or it's very shiver and shakeish if you know if you remember that kind of thing and um, but in the middle of it obviously it being an annual they have a bit of factual stuff a bit of a puzzle a bit of what have you there was a factual piece about Bully Rectory and again what are you doing telling kids <laughs> about Bully Rectory uh, at the age of six and I was absolutely terrified of this book. It's all photographs, and it's but it's photographs of Borley Rectory, in, you know, in 1975 or something. This is how context works. There's a picture of a bit of brick on the floor, and it says, "This is all that is left of a wall." You know, and I was like, and, and, and I couldn't even look at it. It was so terrifying. And then there was a pile of crockery and broken rubble and a bit of brick, and it says, "Just look at this." pile of bricks i was absolutely horrified i was terrified of it i had to look through there is a list of the contents online there's very little scans sadly but i mean amongst all the there were comic strips there appear to be serious strips as well which i, I imagine were quite creepy but i noticed there seems to be quite a lot of features about haunted motorways which is like proper psychomania stuff <laughs> what's going on there? and also a ghost crossword which just made me laugh just because the name of it but i don't i don't remember that one i have the one i paid as I have are, there's a factual report on The Amazing Mr. Blunden. The, I believe it's a Disney film, I think, wasn't it? And they have some jokes and a crossword and a, that kind of thing. But I don't remember that. I don't remember the haunted motorways. And that sounds insane. It, actually, it would, it would perfectly suit me nowadays. I'd be perfectly interested in it now. But, uh, yeah, I, I just need to be able to find a copy of it. Brutalist horror, you know. <laughs> Town planning horror. This does bring us round to something equally creepy in its own way, but which I'd never heard of until now, which is something else you wanted to mention that only you seem to have, which was 
Meet Mr. Bomb, Mad Magazine's parody of the Protect and Survive pamphlet. And I was, I'll let you explain. I was astonished when I found out who wrote it. Yes, I, mean, I don't know how I how I came by it. I mean, I assumed that I got it with a cop. I had a subscription to Mad. Actually, I won the subscription to Mad with a caption competition in about 1980. What and was the sh- caption? Come on. I, can't, I, re- I genuinely can't remember. No, I, and I assumed that this came with the Mad Magazine subscription. And it's it's its, its own little self-contained booklet. And it's called, yeah, the, uh, the official UK government parody, Meet Mr. Bomb, A Practical Guide to Nuclear Extinction from the Ministry of, of Futile Preparedness. Looking through, and I didn't find it again until maybe two or three years ago. I mean, it must have influenced my Scarfuck stuff. I mean, it's just, it's got public information posters in it. It's got little sections telling you what to do if you haven't got any hands because they've been blown off. <laughs> it's got a little area where you can take cyanide. Um, I mean, this, this it's just absolutely insane. I, I know. And again, this was going out to 10-year-olds, you know, or 11-year-olds. So it's it's a strange little book. I mean, it, it looks very, very similar. The, the designs and the illustrations, the black and white sort of line illustrations are very similar. And I'm just looking at one of the adverts now. There's a public information ad, and it's an advert for a product called Preparation H-Bomb, Fighting Fire with Fire. It says, with half my family melted, no food, no water, no medical assistance. The last thing I need is hemorrhoids. It's, it's an unusual little booklet, and I'm surprised that no one's heard of it, because I mean, I, I must have read it a thousand times as a kid. And as I say, it must have been become part of a subscription and i'd love to hear if anyone else has has seen it because it's it's an odd little artifact well do you know who wrote it it doesn't say who wrote it but it's said it's published by the high meadow publishing and suron international publications printed in finland that's all the information i have and the editor was a guy called tony hendra yeah tony hendra who was he was one of the sort of british 60s satire boob who went over to america Ah, worked for national lampoon so never came back but he is Ian Faith in This Is Spinal Tap, which oh, was just course. done before this. I wonder if there's any tap references in it because he used to sneak them into things all the time. I, that's definitely. I'm, I'm going to look at this with a new sort of uh, perspective. I had not placed that at all, but of course, yes, absolutely. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to reread that. In fact, that might be when he came back over here because he was initially involved with Spitting Image, right. and that lasted a very short time. But yeah. it was probably while he was doing that. It must have been. I'm just see if there's a date on it somewhere. 1983. 1983. Because there's lots of different dates for it online. Well, there is that thing I think when you're a kid that you know when you get something that I don't mean adult humour in you know sort of blue humour but stuff as if it was written by adults for adults that credited you with a bit of intelligence mm, yeah anything definitely. like that in those days was a real rarity and you've read things from cover to cover things like that again and again I mean the one I always come back to quite a bit different in tone but it was Sinclair User Magazine did the Christmas quiz which is like something you would have found in Punch just full of ridiculous questions <laughs> making fun of Alan Sugar yeah right yeah yeah it really felt like kind of I was being allowed into this grown up world where I don't think I quite understood all you know I used to have the private eye annuals as well and so yeah, I didn't me too, quite get yeah. all of that but Things like that are really appealing. I think that's why Lee and Herring had such a big child audience when they were at their height, because yeah. they didn't talk down. To, you know, they were on Radio 1, and they were not talking down to the kids listening. They were yeah. doing their they, own weird jokes on the West Coast Popars experimental band. And this is the thing, you know, kids, if something makes them laugh or something interests them, and they don't know what it is, they'll go and look it up. I mean, yeah. you know, it's... You have the, all the old little autodidacts finding out about the world because they're not being patri- you know, they're not being uh, treated like kids. Well, I hope this didn't make you go and look up Protect and Survive. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Okay, we're well, moving on to your next choice now, which is somebody who probably wouldn't have needed the pamphlet because I think he would have been quite safe anyway. Here's an advert for him, and we'll talk about him in a minute. It's Maskatron, the robot. Here's Steve Austin. At last we meet. Look out, Steve. Maskatron will conquer you. Take that, Maskatron. And that. Ow! And that. Ah! Steve will beat him every time. No, he won't. Maskatron will be back in another disguise. Maskatron, new from Kenner. Six million dollar man sold separately. Okay, don't all rush out and buy Maskatron now, because I don't think it's been available for a long time. But this was actually closely related to a much more well-known action figure. Richard, who was he? Nobody knew who Maskatron was, because he was the enemy of Steve Austin, the Bionic Man. But he didn't appear in the series. So he was, it was a Kenner trying to expand the range essentially and so they invented this supervillain, and they called him maskatron and because nobody knew who he was they had to sort of 
right on the box and sort of parenthesis, he is the supervillain, <laughs> uh, in case you didn't know. And they, they said it in almost, uh, we've been insulted sort of way. Yeah, he was this strange, well, what had happened, of course, is because when Steve Austin, the doll, came out, he had bionic sections. He had like a, a piece of plastic you could take out of his arm that had sort of uh, the equivalent of 25k of RAM in it. And so, yeah, the kids loved it. You could roll up the skin on his arm and you could have a look at this bionic chunk. And um, so they thought, well, that really worked. Let, why don't we make a character that is completely made out of those little chunks that you can pull out? Let's, fact, let's make every single piece of him bionic. So you had a guy who was a robot that you could change his face. Sometimes he had a mask, hence the name. Uh, he had these several masks. He looked like uh, Oscar Goldman and Steve Austin, and he had his own face as well. Yeah, I had that written down as just bloke. <laughs> yeah, that's just, you just exactly just bloke is Maskatron. That is that is that is his actual name, just bloke. Yeah, he he's basically had these. He had a sort of a Doctor Who plunger arm, a Dalek plunger arm, uh, and you could actually swap arms as well. He had one arm that was a kind of uh, gripping thing, and normal arms as well. Now, but his his main feature was he could sort of fire his arm at you or, or his leg, but he sort of went over the top a little bit. And it very quickly descended into sort of the Black Knight from Monty Python and the, <laughs> the Holy Grail because you could throw everything at you. So all that was left was a torso. I'm not entirely sure how this supervillain was supposed to destroy Steve Austin after he'd thrown all his arms and legs and head. Well, I was going to say, yeah, they never brought him in because I was surprised to find out that Bionic Bigfoot, who you could also get, was in the series. Yeah, he was in briefly. He's played by Andre the Giant. Ah, right, that makes sense. But yeah, uh, Maskatron, despite the merchandising appeal, appears to have been just merchandise that's right yeah i think the only other thing that they had there was yeah there was the yeah like you say there was the the bigfoot and there was a steve austin rocket shuttle kind of thing but it was essentially just a cylinder it, it looked like a flask it looked like a thermos with a one weird one-eyed man inside it and then of course there was the range for the bionic woman so you had all the fembots oh actually there is there was one other product i'm just going to try and find it now because it made me laugh when i saw it that's to do with this whole Steve Austin range. And it's something I'd never seen before. You could buy a box and it's called Critical Assignment Legs. <laughs> right. <laughs> All it is is a box with two legs in it. And at the side in the small in the small print it says shoes and socks not included. Actually I'm looking I'm looking now. You got a choice of a first aid leg or an exploding leg, which one sort of destroys the other, I suppose. Yeah, they cancel each other out. <laughs> well, exactly. An exploding leg and a first aid leg. So that, that was a bit odd. Did you have either of the board games and Six Million Dollar Man? They were both just Ludo. That's all oh, oh, God. They've done that with other games, haven't they, where they've just taken an existing format and just... Yeah, the Bionic Woman, Star Trek, War of the Daleks. They're all just Ludo, basically, for new <laughs> adventures. Yeah. Oh, God. That's, it's kind of, it really is cheap. And actually, when you look back at these games, you know, there's a, where I live in Switzerland, people love old board games for some reason. And so you can still buy them intact from charity shops, my view. And it's just amazing just how cheap this stuff was. I mean, it's the Star Wars game. I bought that recently, you know, from 1977. And it's just really thin plastic and just some very rough, almost newspaper print things to print. You know, it's just unbelievably rough stuff. But, you know, when you're a kid, you absolutely love it. Okay, well, I think we've both been prevaricating a bit here because I know what's coming up for your next choice. And believe me, if you listen to this and you thought, no, we've had ghosts, we've had haunted motorways, We've had the Waltons fighting a poltergeist. You might have thought it was a bit creepy and unpleasant already. Got absolutely nothing on what's coming up next. I'm just going to play a clip. If you've never heard this, you won't react at all. If you have heard it, I don't blame you for stopping listening now. Good morning, boys and girls. It has been brought to my notice that some of you have been playing on the railway again. You are old enough to understand that the railway is not the place for any kind of games. I'll say it again. The railway is not the game field. Yeah, but if it was... Okay, that's introduction to the finishing line. I can't really explain this myself, so Richard... Off you go. Actually, nobody can really explain the finishing line. <laughs> Again, what on earth were they doing showing this to kids? Technically speaking, it's not a public information film. It's a, it's a film by the British Transport Department. And they made a, a film to try and stop children playing near railway tracks. But of course, you know, they didn't just state it, obviously. They had to make some kind of Mario Bava Dario Argento version. 
throwing some lynch and some surrealism. And it's basically a kid sitting on a, on a railway bridge, what I remember. And he starts imagining this scenario that involves suddenly there's a sports day on the, on the bank side of the, uh, the railway and there's a brass band playing and there's tents having, you know, cakes and tea and what have you. And you suddenly realize that these children are going to start having their sports day on a railway line and in a railway tunnel as trains are coming. So over the course of about 15 or 20 minutes, I mean, this isn't like a 30 second TV commercial, it's 20 minutes long. These children are destroyed by a train one by one and they're carried out bloody and mangled by adults and, and, and laying in a row on the railway tracks and then it stops and that's really what happens and you cut back to this kid on the on the uh, bridge thinking yeah that wouldn't be good would it <laughs> quite a funny ending in a very bleak way but yeah. it's one of those things that i think a lot of people saw and a lot didn't because mm. there appears to be a big furore about it but I had no awareness of it. It's like, I don't think we were ever shown it in school. And it was years before I even believed it was real. Because the first thing I knew about it was when I was doing a fanzine in the 90s about, you know, all this kind of stuff, all kinds of retro old TV and so on. Somebody, one of the readers, wrote in once asking if I could put a name to this thing that was shown in school where I think he described it as some children run into a railway tunnel and they come back out looking like soldiers returning from the Somme. Yes. And I thought, what, what, what could that have been? I think he described quite graphically what, you know, because it is pretty visceral. Oh, you know, very the, much so. The damage that's shown done to them and very convincing effects for the time. I'd always wonder what the hell that was. And it was years later, people started, when TV Cream first started, people started emailing in saying, we were shown this thing in school. I think some may have used the name, the finishing line, but I remember trying to find out something about it. Yeah. And the only thing online was the British Transport Films website, which had, you know, detailed entries for everything else, like that night mail film, complete with stills. The finishing line was a page of one paragraph about how they didn't have a copy of it. They had deliberately not kept a copy. They described it as a film that was made to shock and it worked. <laughs> and the only yeah. image they had was of the award it got at some European film festival. <laughs> yeah, probably a horror it, film festival. Yeah, no, it, I, I don't know what award it could have been because at the top was a drawing of what looked like the bird from Dodo the Kid from Outer Space is a weird mechanical chicken. Yeah. So it won the Mechanical Chicken Award, whatever that is. But... Yeah, they, they made it up. They, they wanted to look like they won something. When but... They were actually ashamed. They were actually completely ashamed. Now, the reason why you wouldn't have seen it is because it was banned two years yeah. later, within two years. I'm not surprised. Me neither. But, you know, in the Infinite Wisdom, they replaced it with a film called Robbie, which is obviously about a kid that has his legs cut off by a train again, of course. There was a theme developing here. And presented by Peter Purvis, just at the point when he was stopping to mean anything to kids anymore. Yeah. That was always their thinking. It's like I remember in the late 80s that in schools they had the Pace Setters Don't Smoke campaign with people <laughs> like Daley Thompson giving a thumbs up. That's right. There's one with Hazel Dean about oh, four my. years after she'd had it. Ironically, she then came back with Who's Leaving Who. But I remember people saying, who the hell's that? Yeah, the finishing line is out there now because I think the BFI had a copy. I think it's interesting that there's such a huge cult following of things like Ghostwatch and Threads and all kinds of things like that. Even Apaches, the similar film about not playing on the farm. Yeah. No, it's quite a regularly used reference point. The finishing line never is. And I wonder if that's just because it freaks people out so much. Well, yeah, I think the surreal, dreamy nature of it that isn't really... You know, most public and French films at the end very blatantly say you really should not do this or you will be hurt whereas this one doesn't you know it just you see you see those kids getting hurt and then a, a kid sort of sitting on a bridge thinking about it and then he wanders off here's the thing about you know who was it aimed at why and it wasn't really specifically warning kids against anything in particular i don't think it counts as don't play on the railway because that doesn't involve big tents full of cakes and so on and <laughs> elaborate events and adults there to carry you out. Yeah. What message is that trying to hammer home? You know, like poor old Jimmy goes into yeah, the substation yeah. to get his frisbee back. You know exactly what I'm saying not to do. The finishing line is just a bit more abstract. I gather it was directed by John Krish, who directed a lot of very weird low-budget British films. Yeah. Not weird as in surreal, but weird as in, you know that odd kind of mundanity you got in the 50s yeah, and yeah. 60s? where it's creepy because it isn't creepy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's yeah. very slow and buttoned up and stayed and so on. And immediately after this, he did a biopic about Jesus. Oh, that's right, in the late 70s, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> what? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, no. That's a bit of a leap, isn't it? And well, it's, it's the seventies. You certainly didn't get pigeonholed on, you know. Have you ever seen? This has come up a couple of times. This, but never really talked about it at length. Take an easy ride. The hitchhiking one. No, I haven't seen that. That one. is really weird. Yeah, about yeah. The, the risks of hitchhiking, which run from getting pregnant to being targeted by a hammer murderer. Oh God! It's <laughs> is really, that the same? Is that the really same? Really not pleasant. Is that the same kind of period? Yeah, I think it's about seventy six, seventy seven. Yeah, yeah. God, they really—they're all crazy in their own way, you know. And the thing is, I suppose they did work, but it was overkill because you know, not only was I afraid of going near a railway line, I was afraid of going outside. I was afraid of wearing <laughs> sports equipment. I was afraid of tents and cake. You know, <laughs> You know, it just completely killed every desire in me to do anything. Well, you're not going to get away from it very soon, because I'm wondering if your next choice was actually deployed in the making of the finishing line. Some of those sounds are just a bit too close for comfort, so maybe they came from this. Well, that's a fine selection of execution and torture taken from BBC Sound Effects number 13, Death and Horror. Richard, why have we got this queued up on the turntable? You know, you'd go into Smith's uh, and look at the records. And on the children's records, there would be records by the BBC Records and Tapes Sound Effects Department, as you say. And they were all absolutely hideous. I mean, the cover now, you can imagine the uproar if a cover uh, of a children's LP or that kind of LP had, I'm looking at it right now, a green alien in a blue shroud uh, hammering a stake into somebody who has previously had his leg and arm cut off, an eye ripped out, and next to him a mummy is decapitating a man. This is the sound effects of the cover of Sound Effects Death and Horror, uh, including tracks such as, I'm looking at the back cover now, Red Hot Poker into Eye, Nails Hammered into Flesh, Soaring Leg Off, Neck Twisted and Broken, Strangulation, one scream and two scream. Uh, and not only do we have one volume of this death and horror, I think there are three or four in front of me now. I have even more death and horror. And that's a, a sequel to more death and horror. So there are at least three. And each is, you know, increasingly worse than the last one. The last one has, <laughs> I don't really understand this one. Side one, track B, it's called Two Throat Cuts or Two Throats Cut. Fingers chopped off. And there are five variations. And how many ways can you cut people's fingers off? Well, even if you did it one per finger, one is a thumb. So it doesn't really count. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I know a bit about this because obviously I know quite a bit about BBC records and tapes. But the yeah. weird thing about it is that all of these sounds originally came from radio plays. Oh. And the BBC were not in the habit of, you know, putting out the gore hour on the light programme or whatever. <laughs> so they must have been... You know, in their context, absolutely passed without comment. They were just there to illustrate things. Probably a lot of them were things like King Lear and so on. Yeah, yeah, think about course, it. Yeah. Put all in sequence on this album with that weird cover, which with the stuff you described, but also what looks like somebody's melted to copy the Rocky Horror Picture Show album <laughs> cover, Inset Circle. It it's is a spooky absolutely, face. Absolutely, absolutely horrifying. And it's not surprising that I'm not kind of behind Mary Whitehouse making a song and dance about it. She called it utterly irresponsible. But there were yeah. quite a lot of complaints about it. And I believe there's a tabloid that called it a waste of public money, which I don't understand because it's not a waste of money. In any way, it is an album. I mean, it sold pretty well, actually. I think it was the only BBC Record Sound Effects album that charted. Probably on the back of all this. I mean, there's an urban myth about if you hold it up to the light, the vinyl turns blood red. That was just the particular thin, cheap vinyl label used around the It does it on things like uh, the album of, what is it, the Winter Sports Themes album as well, which I don't think is particularly scary. But it... (laughs) really is quite a... Any of the sound effects albums are just mostly quite... I mean, it's worth pointing out there was this this long series of BBC sound effects albums, and the whole purpose of them was they were to be used in stage plays or home movies and so on. Yeah, and exactly. They were probably... They were thinking this would be used mostly in a comic context, really. Not to make an early prototype of extra or something. But, <laughs> but you know, again, it's the time. It's, you know, they thought, you know, there was an obsession with horror subjects. Yeah. I mean, every kid I knew for Christmas birthdays, horror books, horror books, film horror books, tales of the unexplained, photographs of the unknown, that it was the time and I don't know where it came from it's, it's a British phenomenon it didn't happen in America 
Well, I think it's interesting as well that people must have listened to this right the way through. Because I can tell you for definite, I listened to sci-fi sound effects, which is later on in the series, right the way through. Yeah, including like the Godfrinchon Fleet Arg B background from Hitchhikers, which went on for about 17 million years and was just a hum. <laughs> and I hated it, but I never skipped it. Everyone listens to these things in full. Can you imagine somebody listening to an album like that now? Okay, well, there's absolutely no respite from spooky stuff yet. Because we're moving on to your next choice, which I very, very faintly remember this from when it was on. I don't remember this being what bothered me about it, but here's the... I'm hesitating to call this music, but here's the music that went with these visuals. Right, that's the opening of Come Back Lucy, ATV 1978. Richard, why did this bother you so much? Don't even mention the name of this programme. I'm just (laughs) still terrified of it. This is one of those strange fragments. Again, it was another one of these, did I or did I not dream it? Nobody ever knew what I was talking about. I have no idea what the programme was about. I never got that far. It was probably a Sunday afternoon. Again, in this whole 1970, 77, 78 period where we're being bombarded with Poltergeist and and everything else and these ghost albums and these horror horror albums and what have you. So then you think, oh, there's a nice little period drama on coming up for children. I think I'll watch that. And it's called Come Back Lucy, which sounds very innocent. And then you're thrown completely off guard because you... It starts out with a girl entering a what I think is a, uh, an attic room, and she walks over to the mirror. She moves her hair to one side, and then she turns around and walks, but the version of her in the room remains, and the girl in the, the reflection disappears, and the girl turns around, and she's got no face. And I, I was, you know, profoundly horrified when I when I saw that. I probably needed medication because it was just absolutely horrific to me that that this girl had abs- had a girl had no face. That's literally all I can say because I refused to watch the program and uh, and then I forgot about it for many years and argued with people that it did exist and they didn't know what I was talking about and of course it did. So I think I got a bit further than you because I remember Lucy was a kind of troubled i don't think she's quite a teenager i think she might be about 12 13 but she was sent to stay with i think they were relatives who lived in a haunted house haunted by a victorian girl called alice and i think i gave up part way through out of being a bit spooked by it but i think it was alice was trying to take her place in the presence oh wow okay that that could be the case she was kind of a, a malevolent phantom and the other thing i remember is the credits at the start came over Again, this was a real thing in the 70s. I've watched it again now. I think it's just lights being shone into water, different coloured lights. It's one of those things where you couldn't quite work out what it was. There was a thing around them of, for some reason, things where you didn't know what they were. That bit creepier, even when it was, wasn't something scary at all. Oh, definitely. I mean, I mean, it was just cheap effects from their point of view. <laughs> it wasn't no turd decision, but that definitely did happen. But, you know, it, again, it's something that this is a more comical example, but was everywhere in this kind of thing in the 70s. Because I remember Peter Serafinovich once saying that, you know, there's the public information film about registering your bike at the police station with all the people queuing up to report their bikes. You know, the kid go, I, I think it was blue, no, it was green it was you know all comical things like that Mm -hmm. and quentin crisp man comes in and they say what was in the saddlebag and says some personal items (laughs) i'd rather not say and peter was like what the (laughs) hell could it have been (laughs) (laughs) you can't think of anything it might be (laughs) genuinely (laughs) even allowing for sort of sick perverted imagination (laughs) i know exactly what was it (laughs) i know absolutely oh god i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to track that one down but there were a lot of serials around then that were too frightening for kids they didn't get very far into i know a lot of people wouldn't watch chucky past the opening titles oh yeah i love chucky yeah the bbc pinocchio i refused to watch after i think the second episode that was far too creepy 1978 again it's it goes back to the original source novel and you know the the whole thing is about geppetto's son has died and makes an effigy of him that comes to life (laughs) yeah and it's like a proper sort of gnarly puppet at weird angles interacting with actual humans 
Oh, also, the CSO background is even weirder. And the adults are really sinister in it as well. Well, there were quite a few shows like that that had that kind of effect. And I'm wondering if one of them was something else that you mentioned, which is the Moon Stallion. Which, again, I think was this from 1978 as well. I think, again, I think it was. Uh, the Moon Stallion was, I, again, another one. It's just a fragment. I don't remember the program at all. I looked at the title sequence, didn't remember it. But I remember being really unsettled by one scene which was why it's very hard for me to find it, because how do you describe a scene like this and people know what you're talking about? There's some children looking at the skeletons of a frog, and it had been placed in such a way that it was obviously to do with some kind of folk magic. It's 1970s folk horror, and again, again, it's period. So, you know, as in the 70s and 60s, everyone was obsessed with Edwardian and Victorian Britain, you know, so, and especially with ghost stories. So, yeah, you've got this kids' TV program, and there's just... It just it just seemed like such a weird thing to me to have the bones of a uh, a toad being used in this sort of ritualistic way. And I remember that the kids found and some sort of local tinkerer guy comes along and he picks up the bones and I think he talks to them and he throws them into the water. And then he picks out one bone, which is obviously tea leaf reading or whatever. It's, it's obviously done something that means something to him. And he walks off proudly with this little skull or whatever it is or this little bit of backbone or something and i just thought what on earth is that and i just i think when i was a kid any kind of black magic british folk horror kind of really unsettled me you know the moon stallion is really weird because doesn't she meet the green man at one point and i'm told that that scene was in the broadcast but when they brought it out as one of the first bbc videos that was missing from it because it was too weird and the other odd thing about it is it's got quite a lot of doctor who links as oh, right. in Sarah Sutton, who was later Nyssa, yeah. the lead in it. Also, it's written by Brian Hales, who oh, right. is probably best known to most people, but he wrote most of the Ice Warrior stories mm. in early Doctor Who. So mostly what he's known for writing about was, you know, these noble yet aggressive aliens whose predicament satirised, you know, the political yeah, happenings yeah. of the day. Yeah, yeah. How did he get from that to the Moon Stallion? Which I yeah. still don't. I still don't understand what is happening in the Moon Stallion. <laughs> and it's not like I've, I've not seen weird stuff. It's just, I know it's not that it's nonsense. I just can't figure it out. One of the things that makes a lot of these things unsettling is they're not so blatant. They don't really, there isn't a clear description of why they're making it or what the moral of the story is, to use a sort of a simpl- oversimplification. But it's, you're left with this feeling you're not quite sure what to do with. And that's quite unsettling to a kid who's looking for answers. Yeah. Kids want to be told what things mean, and when you don't, then it's like, what the hell's going on? As far as I'm concerned, that's the main reason why I was so bothered by one of my real childhood bet noirs, which doesn't really get dragged into the whole folk horror thing, but the clown from Camberwick Green. Oh, yeah. Because it ended with just that weird jangly chord at the Mm. end of the music. The clown staring forward, and then the print faded to black. Yeah. And, you know, there was no telly after that as well. And so you were just left there with this image. As a two-year-old, you must think, what is the purpose of that? The closed downs at night used to bother me when I was a kid. I mean, you'd hear it, you'd you'd be in bed, and you'd hear the closed down coming up. And it would be quite unsettling. And actually, they used that to to great effect in Poltergeist. Static is weird as well. I mean, (laughs) there's something weird about static. I don't like it very much. (laughs) Okay, well, we are going to make a concession to the audience for your last choice, because we can, after some of the stuff we talked about, we can't really end on that kind of a note, so... No, let's do something we're nice. We're going to get a little bit more jolly. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. Humbug. Christmas or humbug, Uncle? <laughs> you don't mean that, I'm sure. Oh, but I do. Merry Christmas? What reason have you to be merry? You're, you're poor enough. Well, come then, what reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Bah... Okay, that was a clip from the Richard Williams version of A Christmas Carol. Much love Christmas favourite, but you never see it now. Richard, why do you think that is? Again, what on earth were they doing showing this to kids? (laughs) It's actually, it's probably one of my earliest memories of a cartoon, I think. And again, it's such an early memory that I only have, I've since seen it again because I tracked it down, but I only had this one image, and it's, it's probably the first time that something external scared me, either from a book or a TV program, what have you. And it, all it is, the ghost of Marley, he visits Ebenezer Scrooge for the first time, or, or the, the only time. And, you know, of course, his, his head, his, his jaw is closed shut by the, the, the rag to make sure his jaw doesn't open. And he takes it off, and his, his whole face, the whole jawbone, 
sort of falls about half a foot. I was absolutely horrified by that. And I think I worked it out. I think I, ch- I think I went through genome to work out when I must have seen it. And I, I think I was three or four years old. It came out in 1971. So I, I can't have seen it any later than 1974 or 75. And I think it was 74 or so. So I was very, very young. I was only three years old or something. It's, it's one of those moments that became fro- frozen in my memory. My, I remember my mother was ironing. We had a yellow metal ironing board and I was sitting on the floor and watching what I thought was going to be a nice cartoon. And it was until a corpse allowed its own jaw to drop halfway down its chest. And that's all I remember of the program until, again, until I saw it again recently. It's actually it's quite, not, it's quite good. Yeah, actually. It's quite sweet, actually. I mm. mean, it's not quite the Muppet Christmas Carol, but no. I remember seeing it and finding it quite jolly. Yeah, it, it, it is when you, I think it is if you're not three. And obviously you watch it now and it is quite, it's quite tame, you know, but it's got quite an interesting pedigree as well because it's a bizarre contrast of Richard Williams was the he did the opening titles for things like What's New Pussycat a funny thing happened on the way to the forum didn't he design the Pink Panther I think he did the original movie titles one Yes, I think he did the original Clouseau and the original Pink Panther. Who framed Roger Rabbit? But you've got that, and you've got this very British cast, because you've got Michael Redgrave, Michael Horden, Diana Quick, Melvin Hayes, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> but these are all people who, Joan Sims as well, they all have links to ghost films or ghost TV series and so on. Melvin yeah. Hayes was in the one of Here Come the Double Deckers where they thought there was a ghost, so I think that counts. <laughs> that yeah, counts yeah, exactly. for me. But you know, you've got Michael Horden was in Whistle and I'll Come to You. I know, that was absolutely horrifying i mean the, the the floating blanket and the god it was and the thing is i think one of the scariest things is hearing him whimper it's such an odd film right well just before you go there's one thing that we couldn't identify at all which maybe somebody out there can do which is now i've got a suspicion this might be linked into an earlier episode but you described it as weird green cordial yeah i it's you know i've been trying to track this down now for well since i was a child we, there was i don't know I think it was kind of, I think it was called Tropical Fruit. I always thought it was by Quash, and I've since researched Quash, and it, it's not, it doesn't, it's not included in there. It was a bright green colour. It didn't taste like anything else that I can think of. It didn't have any specific, uh, it wasn't a recognisable flavour. And nobody can find out what everyone is suggesting me. Is it lime cordial? Is it this? Is it that? Is it, and nobody has, has ever nailed it, and nobody knows what it is, and I don't know what it is still. So, if anyone knows what the hell I'm talking about in that ridiculously vague description, I'd love to know. Well, that is matching more or less exactly the description of Quash Tropical, which was featured in the edition of this with Jacqueline Rayner. Oh, really? And again, we turned up absolutely nothing. There's no adverts out there, no record of it yeah. having existed. It must have existed, but no, it's, it's vanished. Absolutely... Yeah, and I what know. F- what flavour could it have been? Did that bloke have the ingredients for it in the saddlebag? <laughs> I know. I think the reason why we don't know is I think it was probably found to be illegal. I mean, it was probably. <laughs> I can, I can, I've, I've, I've trolled the internet looking for adverts. And I find lots of adverts from the period. Mm. And with the design of the bottle, I would have expected it to have come in. But nothing of that colour. No. Uh, and nothing of that, the exact, that, that exact description. And yet, Quash was exactly the sort of thing where you did see adverts with all these varieties where you thought, they're not real. You yeah, know, yeah. I know, like, yeah. Sarsaparilla Quash. You think, who gets that? But none of them got quite tropical in. Well, actually, I was I was recently uh, I recently revisited one of these strange flavors, which I've never I haven't seen for thirty forty years. But in Switzerland, you can still buy American cream soda, and I hadn't even heard of it since the since the seventies. So I was amazed to amazed to find it, and I, I bought a, a can of it to see what it would taste like, and it, the memories come back immediately, you know. And I, I have no idea what flavor that's supposed to be. I mean, on the side it says. It says flavor, flavored drink or something. I mean, it doesn't. <laughs> flavor, flavor from Public Enemy. All <laughs> well, except from Public Enemy, yeah. He probably likes it actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Uh, it's uh, yeah. It was very vague about what flavor it was supposed to be. So, if anyone help us with that, please do. Richard, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Top of the box, the complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes, from the theme to the Six Wives, Heaven at the Eighth, to Awesome Doom by Ed the Duck. More details at timworthington.org.